To see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Hello and welcome to the Discovery National Science Radio Show where the science is live and hard and fast and tuning in can stop you from dropping out. I'm Tim Baines. On this edition, we will feature stampeding dinosaurs, vaccines for hay fever and big log words like bioluminescence. But first up, here's the news with Gina. Workers who have little control over how they do their jobs have an increased risk of death from any cause, according to the journal Science. The finding suggests that giving employees more freedom could benefit their health. Back in the 1980s, the ongoing Whitehall study of British civil servants suggested that many low-ranking jobs had double the risk of mortality compared to their higher-ranking counterparts, even after adjusting for factors such as age, blood pressure and smoking. Researchers hypothesised that this was due to higher job stress, lack of social support, or what they called lower job control, a measure of the degree of latitude in organising one's work. To investigate the impact of job control in a broader cross-section of society, Ben Amick, an epidemiologist at the University of Texas School of Public Health, and his colleagues used data from a survey study of American income patterns begun in 1968. From this sample, they assigned some 25,000 people a job control score from 1 to 4 based on their past job titles. A score of 1 indicates the worker held only low control jobs, such as assembly line worker, toll booth collector or nurse's aide. High level management jobs scored a 4. After adjusting for gender, race, income and other factors, Workers in the lowest category had a 43% higher risk of death during the time they were working or in the 10 years following retirement than workers in the highest category. And the second lowest category carried a 33% increased risk, the researchers report in the May-June issue of Psychosomatic Medicine. Stressful or demanding work, meanwhile, had no significant impact on mortality. Anik points out that the results don't necessarily prove that unfulfilling work causes poor health. Sickly workers might take more passive jobs, for instance, although the researchers tried to account for this using workers' responses to questions about their health histories. Michael Marmot, lead researcher on the Whitehall study and an epidemiologist at University College London, calls the increased risk considerable and suggests researchers look at ways to create work environments that free workers from mindless labour, especially in offices and service industries. And in the journal Nature, a physicist has worked out how many calculations have happened since the Big Bang. Seth Lloyd, a physicist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, has estimated how much information the universe can contain and how many calculations it has performed since the Big Bang. Lloyd views every process, every change that takes place in the universe, as a kind of computation. One way of looking at the exercise is to imagine setting up a simulation of the universe, particle for particle, 
on a hypothetical computer. To simulate the universe in every detail since time began, the computer would have to have 10 to the power of 90 bits or binary digits or devices capable of storing as one or a zero. And it would have to perform 10 to the power of 120 manipulations of those bits. Unfortunately, there are probably only around 10 to the power of 80 elementary particles in the entire universe. We tend to associate computation with problem solving, while it isn't clear that there is any problem for the universe to solve. But the connection between information science and physical processes appears once we think about events on the quantum scale. Every fundamental particle has a discrete number of different quantum states available to it. If a particle moves from one quantum state to another, this is rather like switching a bit in a computer from one state, say 1, to another state, say 0. If one regards the universe as performing a, a computation, says Lloyd, most of the elementary operations in that computation consist of protons, neutrons, electrons and photons moving from place to place and interacting with each other according to the basic laws of physics. And what then is the universe computing? Its own dynamical evolution, says Lloyd. As the computation proceeds, reality unfolds. And still in nature, there will be starrier skies over the Czech Republic from now on. The first national law prohibiting light pollution came into effect there last week. From the 1st of June, all outdoor light fixtures in the country must be shielded to ensure light goes only in the direction intended and not above the horizontal. Light from street and road signs bounces off molecules in the atmosphere, making skies, especially over cities, less dark. This light pollution is a particular problem for astronomers. Even low levels of man-made light from distant cities can obscure their view of faint objects far away in space. And for city dwellers, it is sometimes hard to remember there are even stars up there. Czech astronomers who lobbied for the legislation are delighted, but everyone should benefit from the new law, they say. It's not just astronomers that benefit from darker skies. Non-polluting light fixtures are more energy efficient and re reduce bothersome glare on roads and in residential areas. And also, it looks nice. some relaxing music, yes. In the warmer months, it has been known for the Discovery crew to get together for a bit of a road trip or a holiday. Earlier this year, some of the Discovery crowd hired a boat and trundled around the beautiful Mile Lake area of New South Wales. Why am I telling you this? <laughs> Apart from the wine, the food and garishly coloured Hawaiian shirts, a particular feature for me was some very special night swimming. Why was it special? Because, well, well, night swimming is just great anyway in a secretive, forbidden kind of way, but it's all the better when you're swimming amongst microscopic algae that glow 
on contact. This phenomena is called bioluminescence. Only a very weak light is produced but by the algae, and so it can only be seen at night. I remember sloshing about in the murky waters, transfixed by the trail of sparkles left behind in the wake of my arms and legs. And it will be some time before I lose the memory of Discovery All-Star Gina Satori doing her very best impression of an aquatic Tinkerbell. <laughs> Many people might have occasionally seen this luminescence in a sudden flash in the foam of waves crashing on a beach at night. My best advice is when you see that again, jump in. Bioluminescence is simply defined as light produced by a chemical reaction which originates in an organism. It can be expected any time and in any region or depth in the sea. Its most common occurrence to uh, the sailor is in the often brilliantly luminescent bow wave or wake of a surface ship. In these instances, the organism in question is almost always a single-celled alga called a dinoflagellate. These often number many hundreds per litre. They are mechanically excited to produce light. This can happen due to the passage of a ship, by the movement of porpoises, uh, dolphins and small fish, and of course night swimming discovery team members. Bioluminescence is a primarily marine phenomenon. In fact, it is the predominant source of light in the largest fraction of the habitable part of the Earth, the deep ocean. In contrast, bioluminescence is practically absent on dry land. There, it is most commonly seen as glowing fungus on wood or in the few families of luminous insects. So, who are the radiant stars of bioluminescence? Well, there's bacteria, fungi, dinoflagellates, those single-celled algae again, uh, radiolarians, jellyfish, clams, squid, octopus, worms, sea spiders, crustaceans, echidnoderms like sea stars, sea cucumbers, centipedes, millipedes, insects like fireflies and click beetles, many deep sea fish and even some sharks. Bioluminescence is a subset of chemiluminescence whereby light is produced through a chemical reaction. It's important to distinguish that bioluminescence is not the same as fluorescence or phosphorescence. Fluorescence is a physical reaction between a chemical absorbing light and re-emitting light energy later on. It's believed that bioluminescence has evolved many times in the sea because there are several distinct chemical mechanisms which have been developed in which light is produced by a large number of organisms that are only distantly related. So how do they all do it? At least two chemicals are required. There is one which actually produces the light, uh, generically called a luciferin, and there's one that drives or catalyzes the reaction that's called a luciferase. The basic reaction follows this sequence. The luciferase catalyzes the oxidation of the luciferin. This produces light and an inactive oxyluciferin. Then the oxyluciferin floats away and more fresh luciferin must be sought and brought into the system either through the diet or by internal synthesis. Sometimes the luciferin and luciferase 
as well as a cofactor such as oxygen, are bound together in a single unit called a photoprotein. This molecule can be triggered to produce light when a particular type of iron is added to the system. Frequently, this is calcium. So the likelihood of bioluminescence has more to do with the availability of the nutrients to the organism rather than how bright the preceding day has been. If you want to see this for yourself, you could try scatter some dinoflagellates in your bath. I don't think this would work, but you could have a look at, up at Mile Lakes, New South Wales, round about February. You're listening to Community Radio's National Science Show, Discovery, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio satellite, ComradeSat. Still to come, hay fever vaccines, rue leather and Vietnamese fishermen. Hi, I'm Gates McFadden and I played Dr. Beverly Crusher on Star Trek The Next Generation. And I know Dr. Crusher very well and I am sure that when she's off duty, she would urge you to listen to Discovery, the national science program on 2SER-FM. Make it so. Did I say Vietnamese fishermen? Uh, I think we may have made a bit of a booby there, but um, don't get your hopes up. May have something else on dinosaur tracking later on. But now, Lachlan has just rushed back in from the newsroom, oh, yes. flapping and waving. Absolutely. Got a bit of extra news. <laughs> Just, just chomping at a bit. Yeah, well, you know, try and hold me back, mate. Uh, give me a microphone and away I go. A, a couple of interesting things, though, on bioluminescence when you're talking about that. Um, you know, during the war, uh, Japanese soldiers in the Burma campaign used to get um, small bioluminescent worms and rub them all over their hands, and the light was so bright that you could read a detailed map by it. 
That's one bit of trivia for you on bioluminescence. Also, the commander of the famous Apollo 13, Jim Lovell, um, well, before he became an astronaut, he was an aircraft carrier pilot, and um, he once had a major electrical breakdown in his aircraft and had to find his way back to the ship, and the only way that he could do it was to look down and see the bioluminescent wake of the carrier, and then he could find it and then, and then land. So there's a little bit of bioluminescent trivia for you. Now, uh, with respect to global warming, the debate has, pardon the pun, seriously hotted up. Um, people uh, previously have, begin, have been thinking that global warming is a fact that uh, we've got to do something about it right now. But there is now uh, there are now a couple of questions that are rising um, with respect to global warming. Uh, not meaning to draw any conclusions, but I thought listeners would like to know the other side of it. Uh, from the pages of the BBC, most mainstream scientists believe that human activity, notably emissions of greenhouse gases, has contributed to a significant increase in the average surface temperature of the planet, but there is still a sizable group of researchers who dissent from this consensus. Um, data from weather stations on land and at sea have been used to reconstruct variations in the Earth's annual mean surface temperature over the past century. These show a warming in the range of 0.3 to 0.6 degrees over the period, certainly, but the sceptics doubt for whether much or any of the warming can be linked to increases in CO2. They make the point that much of the data comes from weather stations close to towns and cities, and the warming may simply reflect the heat associated with the growth of those towns and cities. Any real warming that may exist once this bias has been properly extracted falls well within the noise of natural climate ability, well within uh, degrees of freedom. Along with that, sceptics emphasise the inconsistencies between the surface temperature records and the data produced by satellites and balloon studies. The latter show little, if any, warming in the last two decades of the low to mid-troposphere, which is the atmospheric layer extending up to about 8 kilometres from the Earth's surface. Climate models generally predict that temperatures should increase in the upper air as well as at the surface if increased concentrations of greenhouse gases are causing the warming recording at ground level. And lastly, sceptics say that the scenarios of future climate change that are produced by computer models are deeply flawed. So, a bit of controversy there. Yeah. Tim, you got some stuff for us there. Definitely have. Uh, now, what are we going to say? Any soccer player will tell you Kangaroo leather makes the best boots. CSIRO's Jacinta Poole is a biochemist who's been working with kangaroo harvesters, actually out in the field. I have indeed. I've spent nights out with harvesters actually seeing some of the problems that they face and trying to find practical solutions and understanding what best practice things we can put into place so I'd actually have a hands-on appreciation of what they actually do. How did they react to having a biochemist along for the ride? They were very positive, actually. They realised that someone was actually coming out and seeing what they were doing rather than telling them from a desk or an office what's actually happening. So getting a real appreciation for the problems and then being able to understand and give them feedback based on some of those problems. So they were actually quite appreciative of that and they actually had some really valuable contributions to make to me in terms of what we then went back and told them eventually at the end of the process. And it's all very practical. It's about getting the skin off the animal the best possible way. It means that they get 100% value for the skins or the carcasses that they harvest and it means that at the end of the process in terms of turning that into a piece of leather, absolutely 100% of the product can be used in the best possible form. There's been no degradation, no breakdown of the product because the guys at the grassroots have done the correct practices. So the leather itself will be of the highest quality. Who makes the decision about what is in fact the best quality? We pick it up in the 
tanning part of the process because they are the ones who are actually making it into a product. Before it's sold to be made into a shoe or a handbag or a pair of soccer boots, for instance, the tannery is the place where you can decide, has there been damage? Is the product to be downgraded? Is it of the highest possible quality? And there's a lot of overseas interest in the final product. The overseas market is huge. We export somewhere between 2 and 3 million skins a year. Kangaroo leather is essentially the strongest leather of all skins. It has high tensile strength. It's currently used in all the first-grade soccer boots, for instance, overseas, which obviously there's a huge market for that, simply because of its strength for its thickness and its lightness and its durability. It's very highly sought after. So in terms of making the most of the product, there's a definite end sale out there that if we have the highest quality can be utilised, and it's highly sought after as a leather. 95 million years ago, dinosaurs stampeded through outback Queensland, and they left their tracks. A trackways conservation building has been built at Lark Quarry near Winton to protect what Dr Alex Cook says is an internationally significant site. The Lark Quarry dinosaur trackways are one of a kind on the planet. They're the only preserved dinosaur stampede we have anywhere and one of the few instances of running herd behaviour in the world as well. How big a herd are we talking about? Around about 150 individuals of three different types. There's one particularly large theropod dinosaur track and there's around about 150, which is a mixture of two different types of silurosaur trackways and ornithopod trackways. They're sort of small and medium-sized dinosaurs, but the theropod is a lot, lot larger. What information has the site yielded about dinosaur behaviour? First of all, we have evidence of their speeds, which can be determined on their stride length, their sizes, the fact that they were in a mixed group, not just a single species group. The other thing is, if you look at the trackways, you'll see that they're behaving in very similar ways to birds in terms of ways they duck and weave. That sort of information is also preserved in the trackways. What needs to be done to preserve the site? The first thing we've got to do is get the climate that they're in stable. If you can imagine you've taken the top off the rock surface and you've exposed it to the elements and it starts to degrade, you can't do much about that. But what you can do is slow that process down to an infinitesimal amount so at least you've got a hope of saving it. And I suppose this new building is part of that process. We're essentially using thermal mass to regulate both the temperature and the nature of the walls, which are that thermal mass, also regulate the humidity. So you're getting the climate stable. That's the first thing. So you can look after the surface. And then I suppose the next bit is where the experimentation starts trying to work out if you're going to stick this thing back together, what are you going to stick it back together with? How long will it last? How long will you have to repeat it? How do you clean the surface? These are questions which haven't been really addressed anywhere in the world because of the nature of this site is in a fairly unstable rock in an extremely harsh environment. So it's not exactly an easy task. And that's all from us in this edition of Discovery. Sorry you couldn't jam in the story on hay fever vaccines. You will have to listen in now. If you would like to contact us, you can try Morse code. But we can never tell the difference between the three dots, three dashes, with an S or is it an O? Of course, you could try email. In fact, you could try discovery at 2ser.com. That's discovery at 2ser.com. And we should say a big hi to Chuck in Chicago, who did email us this week. There. Does that make the rest of you feel guilty? Hey, Good. 
Contributing to the program were Gina Satore, Lachlan Watmore and myself. Discovery has been produced by Lachlan Watmore in the studios of 2SER Sydney with technical support from Gina. Discovery is broadcast nationally via ComradeSat by the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. I'm Tim Baines. Join us for more scintillating, seductive and satisfying science next week on Discovery. Para que canten,